May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So this Sunday we have uh, the fourth Sunday in Advent. We have two themes. One is love, and we've done a little bit of talking about that. And the other is that traditionally this is a Sunday where we honour Mary. So uh, we've already had a song about Mary, and we're going to spend a few moments thinking about her. So to get us going, I'd like you to talk to your neighbour about what comes to mind when you think of Mary. What kind of words and phrases and titles do you uh, think of? And what place does she have in our faith? So have a conversation about Mary for a minute or two. All right. And what do you think about Mary? Well, she was very brave. She was brave? Yep. Terrified. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's so 14 or 15, maybe younger. Pretty young. And poor. So, not everyone thinks she's poor. So, Glenn has just read a book about how uh, Mary came from a influential, well-to-do family. So they're, um, they're going with the Bethlehem side of the story, Matthew's side of the story, but if you go for Luke's part of the story, and they came from Nazareth, which is generally how she's viewed, uh, poor. Nazareth was small, maybe 75 to 100 families, many of them living in caves up in the hills of, Jew, of uh, Samaria. So it's um, pretty rough up there. So there's a big basilica built over... Uh, big Catholic basilica, one needs to note, built over uh, where her parents lived, Mary's Cave, uh, where they say this happened, the Annunciation. Uh, uh, if you go up the road, there's another basilica, an Orthodox basilica, over the well. Which is uh, much older tradition. And uh, so that's where the Orthodox, and that's the older tradition, that the Annunciation happened at the well. And uh, one of the Anglican bishops who came from Nazareth said... The archangel came at the well and they had their conversation as they walked down the road and finished it at uh, the house. Very good. Via media. Holding the middle way. So, uh, poor. Uh, Most people think poor. There are those that think not. Um, What else about Mary? John, was Mary of David's line? I've always thought so Matthew uh, is all about Joseph and he has uh, the genealogy going back to David uh, through Joseph. Yes, but Joseph uh, presumably wasn't Jesus' father. No. Uh, so um, Luke is much more about Mary and so the genealogy goes... So she wasn't David's wife. Mm-hmm. Well, if God said you're of David's line, then yes. Actually, I've, I've just read it. So, uh, it does go through David as well. Yeah, it was the daily reading um, recently. Yeah, so it does go through David as well, both sides. It'd be interesting to compare them, actually. 
And it goes through Ruth. It would have to. Yeah. It has to go through Ruth. Yes. And wouldn't, wouldn't people point the finger at him because he wasn't really married? He wasn't really married, and they would have pointed the finger to her, absolutely. So this was, this was a dangerous activity. Being pregnant was dangerous. Uh, and um, so this is a small, conservative, devout, pious community. So uh, if you just look at the amount of honour killing, killings that go on in the Middle East and places like Pakistan today, um, that's the world she lived in. She was bringing disgrace and dishonour to her family. So... Uh, this is a dangerous thing. Any other titles or phrases we might apply to Mary? Glenn? Chosen. Chosen? Chosen. Why that woman did God choose? So yeah. that, that is the very type of call to ministry or a call to some special work. Yep. She was chosen. She was chosen. Oh, Michelle. And a saint? Innocent. Oh, innocent. Okay. Yep. So, no queen of heavens, mother of God, any of those phrases? No. Very Protestant, aren't we? <laughs> I was kind of surprised this morning I had two Catholics sitting in here and neither of them came up with those two. So, I was waiting for Diane or Patricia to suddenly come up with that. So, the vast majority of Christians in the world, which is Orthodox, Catholics, and a, a serious number of Anglicans and some Lutherans, uh, those, are, those are terms that they would immediately apply to Mary. Mother of God. And that means she sits, God, Mother of God, Archangels, Angels, People. So she's right up there. And during the Middle Ages... Uh, there were some theologians that tried to push her up into the Trinity and they had a theology of the Trinity. <laughs> I did practice that. Um, came out better at 8 o'clock. So, uh, so a four-pronged Godhead. But that didn't gain a lot of traction. Uh, but she is important. And there are... Um, so one of the prayers that um, certainly in the Western Church, so that's Catholics and a sizable chunk of Anglicans and some Lutherans might pray up to three times a day, is the Angelus, which effectively is the words that we just heard from the Gospel reading, which are prayed and prayed in a way that allow you to think about what those words mean for us. So if the angel spoke to us in those what does that mean for us? How do we live that out? And what is the importance of the incarnation for us? So it's, a, it's an important prayer, actually. Uh, and I remember being in Melanesia. The first time I went, I'd never prayed the Angelus before. And, or maybe, no, I hadn't. Um, and, well, not that I'd been aware of, anyway. Uh, and at 12 o'clock, we were visiting a religious community. At 12 o'clock, the bells, the bells went and people stop and pray the Angelus. So the bells get rung periodically throughout to keep you in time with what's going on. And the people with me, Dorothy Brooker and the um, Mother Superior, all prayed the Angelus. And at the end of it, they looked at me and they went, why didn't you join in? And I went, because I have never prayed it before in my life. I have no idea what you're doing. And they were shocked and surprised. 
because in Melanesia, that is how that operates. And other parts of the world, the Angelus is important and is prayed. For the Orthodox, they have a similar thing, but it's the concept of the Theotokos. So God, uh, Mary is the God-bearer. So the question then is, how are we God-bearers? How do we give birth to God in our world, in our time? So each of these seem to have quite high things and they seem quite strange for us because most of us come from quite uh, Protestant evangelical upbringings because New Zealand's pretty low church. Uh, but they are important. And the vast majority of Christians uh, follow these practices. The vast majority. But we are children of the Protestant Reformation and there was a huge reaction against to some of the excesses of Mary, what was seen as um, the devotion to Mary, which made Mary a god. Um, for most people who pray to Mary, they're not praying to her as a god. They're just, it's like asking the prayer circle to pray for us, only they're going for the big guns. So uh, the church militant and the church victorious. So if you want prayers... Why don't you ask the saints, and who better to ask than Mary, to pray for you? So that's what those prayers are about. Um, they're just on a bigger scale. So, uh, but there was this huge reaction. So for many Protestants, they try to write her out of the story. You can't write her out at Christmas, but you can pretty much the rest of the time. And within the Anglican Church, we kind of um, we straddle all of that. So in this country, we have those for whom Mary is very important. Praying to Angelus is important. Uh, terms like Queen of Heaven, well, certainly Mother of God is important. Uh, through to those who are vehement in their opposition to anything that looks like devotion to Mary. And if you go to General Synods, you will hear all of that and more. So uh, we kind of straddle that. And we can see that same kind of little bit of ambivalence even in the scriptures. So Mark barely mentions Mary. Her kind of one starring role is when she brings the brothers and sisters of Jesus, however we understand that phrase, and uh, she tries to take him home because he seems to have gone off the rails and she's bring, he's bringing dishonour on the family by all the things that he's doing and saying and Jesus kind of disowns her. That's it. That's basically her role in Mark's Gospel. Matthew's not a lot better. Matthew is the let's, let's kind of punt on Joseph kind of gospel. Uh, John doesn't um, name Mary at any time, but just talks about the mother of Jesus, which, you know, like he doesn't also name the beloved disciple, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. And she is present at a number of significant events. So it's kind of hard to tell John's attitude. But Luke, Luke is a big fan of Mary. And so the genealogy comes through Mary. Uh, she has the starring role. The archangel comes to Mary. So in uh, Matthew's gospel, the, the angel goes to Joseph and she just gets pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so all those kind of, there's no enunciation in Matthew's gospel. It's just in Luke. So Luke is the one that really kind of puts Mary in the centre of the story which is a really interesting thing 
Um, so, uh, like there are, well, I wonder, did Luke know Mary? And because he knew her and had kind of uh, got to know her and had been influenced by her, is that one of the reasons why she has a much more prominent place in his gospel than in some of the others? He just believed him. Well, maybe. Yeah. So, for Luke, uh, for Luke, Mary was more than just the mother of Jesus. She also had a significant role to play, both as a prophet, so the Magnificat is all about being a prophet, and... Uh, so in the Catholic tradition, she's seen as an example of motherhood and womanhood. But actually, I think you can say for, for Luke, she was an example of how to be a disciple for men and for women. Which is an extraordinary thing, because she is a poor young girl who grows up to be a woman. But she is the hero of the story who Luke focuses on and says, this is somebody we need to aspire to be like. And that's very unusual. And it kind of makes me wonder why people are so keen to have her come from a well-to-do family. What is, what is that about, really, that we are uncomfortable with this poor girl being the model for us? So, Mary... Well, some of the stuff... Oh, I forgot to put this one up. So, Super Mary. So, she was probably... There, is a, there are voices that say she may have been more well-to-do than we realise, but she was probably, as Tom said, a poor peasant girl in a small village, not a very highly respected place. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Um... And she is a girl who, uh, as I said, lived in caves. If you go to Nazareth, the basilica, the Catholic basilica, which is amazing, is built over Mary's cave. Uh, and out the back are the caves where Joseph lived, so where Mary would have lived. So not, she wouldn't have gone far once she got married. It was a very small community. And she was a young girl who didn't have any say in her life. So up to this point, she had been trained by her mother how to be a good wife. So that when her father arranged for her to be married to a man, which he had to Joseph, she could go and live with his family and fulfill the duties of a wife in that new family structure and bring honour to her family by how she lived in her new family. So she was used to having no say in her life. And when we look at the Annunciation, we often talk about her obedience and her willingness to say yes. She wasn't given a choice. There is no, would you like to do this? The Archangel Gabriel just says, this is happening. And that was how she lived her life. This is happening. But what is remarkable is how she then responds to that. She does what she has expected. She's confused and what's like as anyone would be. She's probably terrified. 
as anyone would be. But in Luke, at least, she understands that something very significant is happening. And because of that, she becomes someone significant for all those who would join the way of Christ. She becomes more than just for Luke, the mother of Jesus. She becomes someone who is a prophet and who teaches people how to be a disciple, how to whip, how to live this way of Christ, the way of love. So, given Mary is our one of our tr- themes for today, I wonder how she helps us live as disciples, and I wonder how she helps us with the other theme of today, love. And to do that, I think we need to go to the Magnificat, which is... Pretty and a pretty astounding statement. In the world that she lived in, and kind of in our world today, it was just that there were lots of people who were poor was simply the way that God had ordained it. So there were lots of poor people, that's how God wanted it. There were a few rich people, that's how God wanted it. God had ordained who would be the poor and God who ordained who had been the rich. And you just kind of lived with that understanding. And that understanding kind of might sound a bit strange to us, but one of our favourite Sunday school tunes was All Things Bright and Beautiful. And if you get to the last verse of that, that's exactly what it says. There's the rich man in this castle where God put him. And there's the poor people down the road where God put them. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it is if you live in the castle. It's not so great down the road. But but lots of people live that way. Well, this is just how God... This is how God created the world. Nowadays, we don't have that. We have different ways of explaining how things should be. We say things like, Oh, well, the wealthy have worked hard, so they deserve it. And the poor are lazy and uneducated... And don't work hard so they deserve to be poor. Even if some of them work three or four jobs trying to pay the rent. So, uh, you know, we still aren't a lot different. We just don't say that that's how God ordained it. Although some people still do. So when we think about that world. And we go back to Mary's song. That's a very radical piece that, of writing. Of singing, really. It's astounding because it says this is not the way God wants it. In fact, God is working to change it. The rich will be sent away empty. The poor will be fed. God is turning the tables because this is not really how God wants it. Which sounds more like somebody who's older than a 15-year-old girl who's lived her life. And Luke's kind of sat down with her and knows where Mary is at the end of her life rather than the beginning. But that's just my crazy thought. What we have here is an astoundingly radical piece of prophecy which looks to a different way of the world being, but also links back to not only the Samuel piece, which 
was all about David and the kingdom of David, but also how that was reinterpreted after the exile, after the return from the exile, and things had not come to be, and people longed for when God's reign came back, and that was all kind of put into the kingdom of David. When the house of David returns, when God returns, and the world is as it should be. And what is the world as it should be? We heard that last week in Isaiah, when good news is brought to the poor, when release to the captives is proclaimed, blind, the blind recover from the sight, the oppressed go free, the year of the Lord's favour, when all debts are forgiven, when the land is returned, when things are put back as God intended it, when the reign of God's justice and peace begins. That's what the Magnificat is all about. Longing, looking forward, looking back, and holding all of that. And at that moment, she becomes a prophet, speaking not only to her community then, but to us today. So how does that help us understand what love is? Well, I think love is when that happens. It is the longing for that. That's what God's love is all about. And sometimes we like to make love nice. Is it this the congregation I talked about? What nice should only ever be applied to? No. When I was at St. John's Theological College, nice should only ever be applied to, our speech teacher told us that nice should only ever be applied to chocolate cake. <laughs> and nothing else. So when he left and I gave, uh, wrote a little farewell poem, I described him as nice. He glared. <laughs> but we have made love something nice. And if we read the Magnificent, love is not nice. It is disruptive. It's dangerous. I mean, look at Mary's life. This coming of God's love into her life was incredibly disruptive. It was really dangerous, as we've already talked about. It was upsetting and unsettling for everyone. But it was also life-giving. And it invited her to see the world very differently. So how does that help us be disciples? To be open to the possibility of that love entering our lives, which could well be very disruptive. And there may be, if we look back at our lives, that we can see how disruptive God's love entering our lives can be. How maybe even dangerous at times, but certainly unsettling, upsetting, but hopefully life-giving. And inviting us to see the world in a very different way, in the way of the Magnificat. Today, the world is full of Mary's. Poor people working hard in all kinds of appalling situations, often to provide food and goods for us in the West as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. So I wonder as we think about all those Marys, as we think about this disruptive, dangerous, unsettling love that God invites us into, how we can then celebrate Christmas that allows them to know life as well. What does it mean for us to be disciples in the way of love 
this Christmas, thinking about Mary and her story and those who follow her footsteps today. You have to be strong, strong because people will put you down and like what they told you you're a religious nut. Well, you could be a religious nut. Well, it's okay to be a religious nut. Yeah. So I have a conversation with your neighbours for a minute or two. How does the story of Mary help you know what being a disciple is, know what love is, and how do you apply that to how you celebrate this Christmas? We've got about three or four minutes. So very small questions, three or four minutes, and then we'll have prayers.